Um, this is a hard story this morning, this gospel reading, isn't it? Uh, there are many hard stories in the Bible, actually. In fact, I dare say that most of the Bible stories uh, would fall into this category, <laughs> if you really think about it. What makes a story hard is when the details kind of collide with our sensibilities. Maybe God doesn't act like we think he should act. Maybe the outcome conflicts with our sense of justice. Maybe we think God is unfair or that there is kind of inexplicable suffering. Those are, those are kind of things that in our culture and at our time are really jarring and rattling. Different culture, different times, they'd be upset by different things. But I'm fairly certain that at almost any time in history, uh, um, there, were, there was tension in receiving and hearing the word of God. And here we find some uncomfortable words. We read that the owner of the vineyard will destroy the tenants. That doesn't ring satisfactory to our sensibilities. We read of those who are broken and crushed upon the stone of God's chosen one. This is drastic and, and kind of disturbing language, and we find it on the lips of Jesus, as Charles Wesley describes him, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And this is jarring and unsettling for some of us. We may have a tendency to move around such texts, kind of like water in the stream flowing around a rock. Let's just move around and keep flowing. Now, on the one hand, we want to keep our faith in God intact. We know that God is good, and there's wisdom in that. So if we read a text that makes it feel like God might not be like that, you know, we're, we're I think, rightfully cautious. The Bible is a complex book with many genres and stories and poems and prophecies. And yet this collection of materials that we call the Bible is organized around a central idea, which is a good thing, the reconciliation of people with God, the restoration of the world to its intended purpose. Fundamentally, we know God in Christ. He's the image of God, the face of God to us. We know that. So when we encounter a text that may destabilize those convictions a little bit, we're rightfully cautious to say what's going on here. And yet on the other hand, we find many instances in scripture that create dissonance. When the love of God is kind of worked like yeast into the dough of the world, we feel the pressure and the pushing and the pulling of that. It's not so simple when the principles kind of work out into the concrete details of life. But here's the, the thing, if we look away from these texts, if we just kind of flow around them, we run into danger. Most important danger, I think, is that it kind of creates ambivalence in our hearts, right? We can't unhear and we can't unsee. We may think we kind of flow it around it, but we really don't. The question just kind of lingers in there and it lingers in our minds and we can kind of if we're not careful, subtly doubt God's trustworthiness and perhaps even avoid those descriptions of him in, in the Bible that are, are there to build up our faith. And in fact, we may start to develop a picture of God that's kind of distorted, not fully shaped by the way that he's chosen actually to reveal himself. It always strikes me that you know, I'm, I'm more embarrassed of God than he is of himself, <laughs> right? Um, so it's important to sit with these stories with a little bit of patience and invite God to show us all that he has for us 
in them. So let's, let's, uh, let's take a, a longer look at this uh, incredible parable and see if we can do a little bit to help us acclimate and understand it more. Well, first of all, this comes later in the gospel. Luke 20 is farther down the road, and it's not a, you know, there's later in the story of Jesus, he's actually in Jerusalem in our story. You didn't catch that fact. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the final phase of his journey during his earthly ministry here. Of course, Jesus still has an earthly ministry, but you know what I mean by that. Jesus has left Galilee in the north of Israel where he did most of his teaching ministry around the villages and around the sea. And he's gone, he's taken the long trek as pilgrims do for Passover uh, from Galilee down to Jericho and then up Jericho, up the hill into Jerusalem. He's just gone through, you know, the gates and the triumphal entry to celebrate Passover with the other pilgrims that are there for that reason. There's a lot of tension here at this uh, period of time. Um, Passover uh, was high tension. It's, the city of Jerusalem swelled to hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. And everybody uh, who had kind of responsibility for the city was on high alert. The Romans were on high alert, and what especially they were looking for was subversion. Like when you get a lot of people together, you, don't, you want crowd control. Right? And the chief priests who were running the temple precincts wanted the same thing. They didn't want any rabble-rousing. They wanted control. All right? So the, the, the atmosphere is electric on every level. The enthusiasm of the pilgrims coming to celebrate Passover and the, 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 uh, the, the awe of seeing Jerusalem right before your eyes and entering into the, the Temple Mount, which was one of the wonders of the world practically. And then, and then, and then the political friction and the, and the, and the, and the military tension and, and the concern uh, to, to kind of keep a lid on the pot. Um, it's really hard to uh, overemphasize the fact that uh, this, is, uh, this is an electric environment. And so you can see how this is bringing uh, Jesus into great conflict with the leadership. It reaches this apex here. Now just prior to this parable, in fact, if you have your Bibles, you'll see uh, that uh, just before our story today, um, Jesus cleanses the temple. From, from a political point of view, that was the thing that was the beginning of the end. I mean, that really disturbed the leaders and they were out to get him for sure after he had done that. And you can see that just after that, they're glomming around them. What gives you the authority to do something like this, they're asking. So Jesus drives out the money changers. They're there really to transact. I mean, it's meant to be a positive service because there's people coming from all over the world with all different kinds of currencies, and they need to, uh, they need to acquire animals for sacrifice. So the money changers are there to kind of help that happen. But of course, you can imagine there's mission creep uh, in that, that enterprise. So now we have some new people uh, that, that kind of emerge. And this is really important when you read the story of Jesus during his last phase in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, you're hearing about the Sadducees and the chief priests. You hear a little less about the Pharisees. That's actually re really important for our parable, as I'll describe in a second. But the antagonists here are organized by the chief priests and their associates. So chapter 20, verse 1, um, as Jesus was preaching, the chief priests and the scribes with elders came to him. 
Okay, so there's a cadre of people organized by the chief priests, and they're the ones who are sharpening the blades. So as you kind of read Jesus engaging with the Jewish leadership now, this is a different group of people than he'll be interacting with in Galilee. While Jesus was teaching in the Galilee, he was often in dialogue or even argument with the Pharisees. Okay, the Pharisees are a different group of people than the Sadducees. Think of these as almost like political parties. Like in America, you have Republicans and Democrats. Not every American is a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, you have some who are actually a part of the party. You know, they participate. But you have a lot of people who are just not a part of it, but they're, they're kind of listening in. They may have opinions and feelings, probably not really too concerned, or maybe they are concerned, but it's a little... It, they're not like, you know, in the party, so to speak. It's a little bit like that with Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees have more in common with Jesus in some respects. So while they oppose and antagonize Jesus, there are indications that there were also those who were sympathetic, even attracted to him. Like you can think of Nicodemus. And, and then here in Luke 13, uh, uh, Luke 13, verse 31, you'll find this. At that very hour, this is in Galilee, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. That's very interesting. The Pharisees, hey, Jesus, you, you know, you're in danger here. You, you, better, you better move somewhere else. So you don't get that from the chief priests. All right? They are not on that level. These folks are associated with people that we call Sadducees. All right, so the Sadducees are priests. All Sadducees are priests, but not all priests are Sadducees. Okay, so if you imagine the group of priests in Israel, there's a small subset that belong to the Sadducees. All right, um, the way it worked is uh, um, the, the priests who um, uh, minister in the temple um, go on shifts, all right? So it's not like they live there all the time. There are priests all over the country and they go on shifts, and when it's your tour of duty, you hike to Jerusalem, you do your ministry, and then you go back home again. All right, so there's this kind of movement of the priestly uh, uh, family, the tribe of Levi, uh, moving back and forth in and out of Jerusalem. But then you have some that stay there all the time. These are the chief priests and the people who are kind of, uh, uh, kind of part of the power structure there. Sadducees are wealthy. Um, they're connected to the Romans. Um, they're, they're more political. And there are some other differences, but you can see how the Sadducees have a different agenda. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you'll see if you look in your Bible concordance, they're not there in the Old Testament, all right? So they have their origins, really, in the period of time after the exile. If you remember that, there's a, a season where the, the kings of Israel really just can't keep the train on the tracks. And, and in 587, uh, they're kicked out. Um, this is a result of their rebellion, very, very bad leadership. I mean, idolatry and injustice and many, many bad things. And so there's a season where Israel is outside the land, more or less. And, uh, and yet, uh, and so when they're outside the land, they start to reorganize themselves in different ways. And then eventually God brings them back into the land with Ezra and Nehemiah, and they began to establish themselves there. And then lo and behold, uh, there's, the, uh, there's a period of time um, that we celebrate with Hanukkah uh, where Israel regains autonomy over the land of Israel. This is the Hasmonean period. 
The reason I'm mentioning this is because that's when you get the Pharisees and the Sadducees starting to develop big time, and the Essenes and some of these other people. It's because they're, they're ruling themselves. And whenever you do that, right, you get in fighting. <laughs> right? Is it, as soon as you have responsibility for the family, you get contentions and arguments. And that's what's going on here. Oh, we should do it this way. No, we should do it that way. All right? And that's where, that's where these traditions develop and where, where, uh, where, these, where, these, uh, where there's a lot of diversity within Israel at this time of time of Jesus. You have the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Essenes and there's more. Zealots. All right, and that's, that's what's happening here. And, and so you can see how when Jesus enters into the fray, you can see why people are already really focused on these critical issues about what does it mean to be Israel? What's our mission? What's our vocation? How do we navigate around these great powers? I mean, Israel's been asking this question for thousands of years. And so they perceive Jesus as a threat. And that's what you'll find coming to the forefront in these accounts of Jesus' last days. The Sadducees of all people and the priests were most threatened by Jesus' actions on the temple and by his popularity among the people, especially during Passover. Okay, I, I, the reason I want to spend just a little bit of time on that is because it's important for understanding what Jesus is saying in this parable. Now, the beginning of the story is actually very beautiful. Uh, we don't have that in our reading, but if you read the beginning of uh, chapter 20, verse 1, one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priest came, etc. But just think about that for a moment. I mean, I, you know, Jesus having, you know, established his authority and presence in the temple precincts here is teaching the people, the many thousands who are gathered there, hungry for the knowledge of God. You know, they're, they're wanting something out of this great initiative they've just taken to be there for the, the uh, high holiday. And here Jesus is gathering together in the portico somewhere, probably in the shade. He's seating there, seated there with him, and he's preaching the gospel. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Could, would you not want to be there on the Temple Mount during Passover with Jesus preaching the gospel? Incredible. I wonder if he was showing them that, that, that he was the Passover lamb, that he's able to be the one to fully forgive sin and restore fellowship with God to bring them into God's embrace, able to fulfill the promises. I mean, imagine what he must have been saying at that time to those people. Imagine the passion and love that he must have felt for them. I mean, we know that Jesus was very emotionally engaged here. He left Galilee against the pleas of his followers, not to enter into harm's way, but he said his face was set. He was resolute in his mission. And when he came to Jerusalem in chapter 19, just prior to this moment here, when he drew near, he wept over the city. And he said, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that would make for peace. This wasn't the first time that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Chapter 13, he says, if... Um, when he laments over Jerusalem, he says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You just imagine Jesus kind of mothering and being that mother hen over the people right here, gathering them and teaching them and preaching them the gospel. 
So here he is with his people, his beloved ones, and the priests barge in and accuse him. So he's confronted by his primary antagonist, and he tells this parable, as he often does. It's a great method. He doesn't just kind of start arguing and fighting and raising his voice. He settles down, and he tells them a story. It's not directed at the people to whom he's preaching, and this is the whole point here. It's directed squarely at the chief priests and their associates who are challenging his authority. So in this context, the parable really isn't all that difficult to figure out. The man, of course, is God. He's the owner. The vineyard is Israel. And this is a common and well-known metaphor for Israel that harkens all the way back to the prophets. Um, it's a metaphor for showing God's tenderness towards his beloved. Here's how Isaiah, uh, here's an oracle from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 2. A pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. There's beautiful songs that God sings over his beloved vineyard. The tenants are Israel's leaders. They're the priests in the audience. This is the key point. They're the antagonists to the owner. They resist God's initiative. They thwart his intentions. They're greedy. We'll say more about them. The emissaries are the prophets. And the son, of course, is Jesus, whom they resent and kill. So we read in verse 9, God goes away for a long while, the owner, I should say. The owner, the man planted a vineyard, and he went away into another country for a long while. I never like that when I hear it. It's in so many parables. This is a hard thing to hear. We're familiar with this. I don't like it. It's a very brief, poetic way of summarizing and reminding us of our predicament. The word, the world rather, distorted through sin that interrupts our relationship with God. We know God is close, but sometimes he just feels so far away. And it is this problem that God is solving. But he is opposed by the very people that he's saving. This is such a picture of the human condition. We can't fathom the extent to which we are in trouble. Um, I have uh, really been delighting uh, in our, our small group with August and Theo and Willow, the little ones uh, in our group, who are insanely cute. Um, they are so lovable and so precious, and it's no mystery to the adults in the room that they're beloved. Um, that their parents would move heaven and earth for them, and they do, especially in the thousand small actions of following them around the room, corralling them away from danger, sharing in their delights, comforting their distress, changing their diapers, picking up their toys, saying yes sometimes and no sometimes, slowly and patiently establishing their sense of identity within the bond of love. I mean, you can just see in their little eyes that they're knowing who they are when they see the delight in their parents' eyes for them. That's the way it should be. And yet, there are times when even our very own children resist what we as parents know to be loving gestures necessary for their well-being, and yet there is that no what to do? 
Israel as God's vineyard. Israel's the focus of his love, his care, his stewardship, his delight. There's nothing that God would not do for them. In fact, in, in Isaiah 27, that oracle which I was reading before, God ex exclaims this. He said, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. He's saying, I, I, oh, if, if I, I want to demonstrate the depth of my commitment to this people. Well, the tragedy here is that the thorns and briars aren't foreign enemies. They are the leaders of Israel. And that's why Jesus cries out in a lament, an existential cry almost in chapter 19, verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. God went away for a long time. It's just as apt to say that we went away for a long time. Yet God is not absent. He sends emissaries. God is not silent ever. He has his agents, a long line of them. Agents that steward his word like Moses or that establish his centers of worship and dominion like David and Solomon or that warn them of consequences of disobedience and that cast a vision of what it will be like when God does return to fulfill his promises once and for all. Those are the prophets. He constantly and faithfully holds out to his beloved all that he has in mind for them. And for their sakes, for their sakes, he resists whatever opposes his goodwill and purpose. That's why we can say with confidence and conviction, like the psalmist says in Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Just like any good parent, God is patient. He's not rash or capricious. Time and again, he sends his emissaries, even when their efforts come to no good end, he tries again. Tragically, the opposition comes from the leaders of Israel who are corrupt and they're leading their people away from their attachment to God. And they're reattaching them to idols. And that is bad. So the drama of the parable builds towards this amazing point where uh, God is considering, like, you know, the most that he can give. And do we see here a picture of a harsh and vengeful and spiteful deity? No. Listen to how the pace of the parable slows down at this point. Verse 13. You know, he's, he has this vineyard. He's sending his emissaries. They kill him. He sends another. He sends another. All of a sudden, verse 13, whoosh, the pace of the story slows. And the owner asks a question. He doesn't rush forward with an answer. This is almost like an, a, an existential question. It's, it's, there's consternation. There's urgency. What shall I do? It's not a, just a rhetorical question. It's an emotional question. I hear this at times when I'm asked to pray with parents whose children have wandered. I hear that mixture of love and despair and hope and that, that kind of searching for a solution to bridge the divide, a way of saying, I'd give up my own life for my child. 
We hear echoes of that in the father of the prodigal son that Father Steve re recently preached about. A man who seemed almost poised to run at the very thought that one day his lost son would appear on the horizon. And that's exactly what he did. I think God is in that posture. He says, what shall I do? I know, he says, um, I will send my beloved son. The penny dropped. He will make the ultimate statement of his intentions, his son, his beloved son. Now, these are very precious and deep biblical words. These were the words upon God's lip when he called Isaac to sacrifice his son, your only son, whom you love. And they were upon God's own lips when he anointed Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God loves Jesus. Jesus is the apple of God's eye. And through him, so are we. Surely, surely the tenants would harbor no further doubt about God's intentions, not here. All that was required of the Jewish leadership was faith. That's all. Every good work desired by God would have flowed from that one simple affirmation of God's character and God's nature. Not a single person who put their faith in Jesus was ever ultimately disappointed. The temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, roughly 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And the Jewish population was dispersed after their final revolt in the year 135. And they regrouped around the heirs of the Pharisees, actually, who grounded their community. They grounded their community on the tradition of their sages and Torah scholars. And they established their focus on the Jewish community. They were wise and courageous people. But they did not see in Jesus the fulfillment of God's promise the other Jewish leaders, the apostles, did. And in their wisdom and courage, they preached the gospel to outsiders like most of us here, non-Jewish people. They rejoiced to see that God's promise to Abraham was becoming fulfilled before their eyes. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and his anger was kindled against those who opposed God's reconciling and renewing effort. And he, the beloved son, he offered himself as the Passover sacrifice to atone for our sins and to initiate this work of reconciliation between Jew and Gentile to God for, forever. And so Jesus' purpose in telling this story was to expose and to judge unrighteous opposition to God's compassionate stewardship of his beloved vineyard, the people of Israel and the heirs of his promise. God was not unjust, not unkind, not unfeeling, not callous or disinterested or unmerciful. On the contrary, Jesus took the entire weight and consequence of unbelief on himself just a few days after this. And in so doing, he opened the gates of righteousness and true life to anyone, Jew or Gentile, who puts their trust in the Messiah as Savior and Lord and God. I think Peter was probably standing there during this parable because it sure sounds like it. If you read the first, Peter's first letter, he says this, um, 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. So we do experience this tension of being in a world where it seems like God has gone away for a long time. And at times the character of God and his work in the world and in our lives become cloudy and difficult to discern. But let's not doubt the character of God. Let's not doubt that he's come to give us everything that he intends to give us and he won't be stopped. I want Peter to kind of have the, the last words here. Come to him. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, a possession, his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen.